Hello, this is Patrick Inhofer from Mixing Light, and this is a very special podcast we have going on. This is not a from the mailbag that we traditionally do with me, Robbie, and Dan. Instead, I have a guest on with me today. You probably know him. Uh, you've probably read his messages on, you know, Creative Cow or on Facebook in the in the various Resolve forums, on the Resolve forum at Black Magic, or on Lift Gamma Gain. I have with me Mark Wheelage. Hello, Mark. Hello. Hello, Patrick. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your very, very busy schedule. You are one busy colorist uh, working out in L.A. Thank you. I am, in fact. I'm also fighting a cold, so please bear that in mind. Normally, I have a must, a much more mellifluous voice. <laughs> Today, I, I do not have my network announcing voice. I have my stopped-up cold voice. Ah, that's okay. You know what? Because we're here to talk about your career, but really what I really wanted to do was zero in on an aspect of the type of work that you do that I find fascinating which is uh, the, the restoration process. You do tons of color correction that involves restoration. But before we get there, let me just give you an opportunity to quickly tell people a little bit about your background. You know, how long have you been in the business? Uh, how much of that time have you spent color grading? Maybe some highlights of your career. Let's see. I've been a colorist in Los Angeles for more than 30 years. Uh, I, I refer to myself as a unicorn colorist because I've never been an editor and I've pretty much never done anything else uh, except that I was a camera operator for about five years. And then after that, I moved to Los Angeles to get a job as a camera operator, found an opportunity to work as a colorist temporarily. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's kind of similar to being a camera operator. I'll do that for a while. And then I looked up and more than 30 years uh, passed by and I realized, oh, I guess this is my career. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I, you know, when I went to college studying uh, film and television production and I graduated, it's like, what do I want to do now, right? In college, they kind of teach you everything um, in terms of the various craft positions. And I came away, I, I, I was like, I could be a DOP or I could be an editor. I didn't know about a colorist at the time. Mm -hmm. I could be a DOP or I could be an editor. And when I got into color correction, I realized it's actually the perfect melding of what I love to do, which is work with images. That's the DOP side of me, but also tell stories, which was the editing side of me. And so I, I find it uh, interesting, but not unusual that someone from a camera background would find color correction very appealing. Yeah, definitely. And I, I also did some lighting and stage direction and a little bit of technical direction, things like that. So it was kind of a good setup to insert myself into being a colorist. And the interesting thing for me was uh, I had to kind of hit the ground running. But back in those days, in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, we were paid very little money. We got very little recognition. I, yeah. I think uh, the, the initial pay I got was $350 a week, which for me was an enormous amount of money, yeah. you know, back, back in my 20s. Yeah. And, uh, but then the job of being a colorist gradually turned into something quite different from what it started out to be. And it became extremely important and very well paying and uh, kind of a big deal here in Los Angeles. Well, let's talk about that for a moment before we get into restoration work. Uh, because, so you started on film. You started working in the film chain in, uh, would, it, would it have been called Telecine back at the time? So we were called telecine operators, and we would, but we did the, the exact same job that one does now with color. Uh, the only difference is we had live films sitting on a mechanical transport, and we would shuttle and play it back and forth and go over each shot over and over and over again and then lay those corrections down to tape. You might say uh, analog capture, so to speak. Over time, the, the job went from completely analog analog film on an analog transport recording to analog tape to completely digital. Right. 
and there were there were various stages of transition in between not to give you the history of telecine but we went through stages where the telecine devices slowly became more digital over time with digital pickups instead of analog pickups the transports got a lot better the uh, the systems all turned digital. The monitors and the routers and the switchers became digital. The tape machines became digital. And suddenly we started playing back digital transports, meaning uh, hard drives, which had, had, had captured the film image. And we would use those with the old version of DaVinci that was used in the 90s called the DaVinci 2K. The 2K yep. was the ancestor of Resolve. And it's actually about 80% identical, eh, maybe maybe 80% is too high, maybe it's 60% identical to what we have now with Resolve. Only a lot clunkier, less reliable, and with much more limited features. But it was the same job done in a very similar way with similar considerations. If I were to ask you as a client, walk into your room and say, give me a Vision 3 500T uh, 5219 look to this, referring to a specific film stock, does that mean anything to you? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, think it's, I think it's very nebulous and uh, full of speculation as to what that, what that is. I can, I, 5219 is my favorite stock, and it's still being used today. Star Wars was largely shot on 5219, and by that I, I mean... Um, the, the new film, nine, The Last Jedi, yeah. episode, eight, episode eight, Last yeah. Jedi. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's a very, very current film stock. Uh, and it has no real look, just as uh, I, I, I can name two or three films shot in the last couple of years on 5219. They don't have a look. The, the only look is dictated by the lenses and the lighting and the skill of the cinematographer. So you can you can screw up the film 18 different ways to the point where it no longer looks like 5219. So designating it as a stock doesn't really mean anything per se. However, once I hear a client say that, instead of giving them the lecture of how wrong they are, <laughs> I always aim in the in the direction of being cooperative and say, I think I know what you mean. Let's try this. So I think the right attitude to use with a client is, let's keep it positive. I'm not here to fight you and give you controversy and conflict. Let's try to solve your problems. You want a 5219 look? How does this look to you? <laughs> and just, just turn the knobs. And that's called uh, you know, being a colorist in client communication yeah. skills, right? I mean, trying to understand yeah. what they mean by what they're saying isn't oftentimes what they're actually saying. Yeah, to me, 5219 being a fairly sensitive stock, it's a little contrasty. It's got some pop in the color. It's not a dull, flat, boring look. It's a little, you know, it's got some uh, impact to it. And, and uh, so I, I know these words are vague, but, but again, it's not a magic button, which is why I, I kind of get a little uh, cranky whenever somebody <laughs> says, I have a magic uh, LUT that will make your digital recording look like 5219. And the, and the funny thing is there's probably 12 or 13 people on the net with LUTs like that that are called 5219. But if you throw each one of them on a digital image, each one of them will look different. Yeah, and that, and, and I wanna, what I wanna do is circle this around to working and doing restoration work. Mm -hmm. uh, because you may or may not, when you do restoration work, and let's talk about that a little bit, your career in restoration. Sure. How long have you been doing restoration work as part of your overall skill set craft? When we were doing this in the 80s, we didn't so much call it restoration. In fact, uh, the people I know in the real restoration business, Bob Harris and people like that, uh, they get uh, a little bit annoyed if we even call it restoration <laughs> because to them, true film restoration starts with film. So they're getting the very best film elements available, cleaning them up to the nth degree, removing every vestige of dirt and scratches and so on, fixing the splices, fixing any uh, giant tears or things like that, and then making a new film element out of that. To them, that's what film restoration is. So it's not just that they're doing the cleanup side of it, it's that after the cleanup, they're going back and essentially creating a clean print from which everything else gets done. 
Yes. Okay. And to them, it all, or, or a clean, maybe not a clean print, but a clean element. Right. So that's, that's really what they're all about. The initial um, color correction we did from features was really for home video and television and broadcast and syndication and so on. And it gradually turned into restoration by the end of the 90s. Around 2001, I think it was, it was right around then that, that Hughes came out with their DLP projector. And we, we started seeing some demos of it and realized, wow, this is going to be the end of the film print world. Hmm. We're going to see a day when all theaters are projecting digitally. So we started uh, mastering titles on DLP projectors around 2001, 2002. I believe 2002 was the first one I did. And uh, so that, that was the beginning of the digital intermediate. So we had two different uh, workflows. One actually projected a digital image from digital files in the theater through a digital projector, and the other took the digital image and went off to a film recorder and then struck a print from that. That was fraught with problems because way too often what we saw on the final film print was ridiculously different from what we saw on the monitor or the projector. And that's where LUTs came in and figuring out you know, how things changed and where they went. And I can tell you a lot of that, you know, I think the, the scholars and the scientists would say that all came from math. My, my observation is it came through an incredible amount of trial and error. Right. They just, they just figured out over time what worked and what didn't. And they would do hundreds, maybe thousands of tests over and over again. And then they would finally figure out, oh, if we do it this way, the reds now come out predictably on the film print if we make the film print in this predetermined way and that was kind of that was a, that was a great thing for the restoration business because now for the first time we could digitally clean up a film and then at the very end of the process give the studio a brand new negative and a brand new print that they could actually screen at a theater and the image quality theoretically would look better than anything they had ever seen before on the previous film copies. So, uh, and have you done that kind of work where you've taken old film, you've done the DI, and then you've gone back out to film again as part of one of yes. your major deliverables? I, I did that at Cinesite uh, two, from 2002 to 2004, and then I did it again at Lowry from about 2009 and 2010. Hmm. Uh, a lot of this work, unfortunately, has now been outsourced. Right. So a lot of digital film restoration is being done in India and China and places like that simply because of cost. Right. But some of it, some of it is still going on in Los Angeles. I think the biggest restoration company in LA is uh, what's what's called Warner MPI, which is the motion picture imaging division over there on the Burbank lot of Warner Brothers. And they do some wonderful work with beautiful pictures. They've done they've done some films like uh, some of the MGM musicals, Wizard of Oz and things yeah. like that. They've done the Coppola uh, films, Godfather and so on. So and it's absolutely beautiful stuff. And are they then, they're also not only just DI, but d does the DI artist or the colorist, are they also involved in kind of what would be considered the color timing portion of it, where they're making sure that the print is coming out the same way that they hoped it should? I think that that is traditionally the job of the color scientist. Now, because this is original camera negative, it is similar to a digital camera file in that it has no timing. So all of the timing, 100% of the color has to come from the colorist. He or she has to sit down and make the decisions. How black is this? How white is this? What's the overall uh, contrast? What's the color? And so on. So the, the film itself doesn't really inform how it's supposed to look. We have to make some educated guesses based on an experience. Now, ideally, after that initial process, somebody, the cinematographer, the director, the producer, anybody who's still alive yeah. who worked on that film will come in and uh, give a kind of an approval pass and they'll noodle and tweak and adjust a little bit just based on their memories of how that project looked 20, 30, 40, even 50 years ago. And subjective memory 
being what it is, perhaps their memories are not that close to reality. Yeah. But I mean, hey, it's their film. <laughs> exactly I'm, I've, right. I've, 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 trained, I've trained a few people uh, to be colorists over the years. And I've, I've told them one of the most important lessons I've learned is don't get personally involved with the projects you're doing. You're just a colorist. This is not your film. Yep. You can make tactful suggestions up to a point. But beyond that, you know, it's 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 not your decision if it should be blue, let's say. And if the client says this must be blue, I'm not going to argue with them. I'm going to say, well, let me show you what it would look like if it was red. And they go, I don't care. It's got to be blue. Okay, it's going to be blue. Once we do that approval pass, we uh, watch it all the way through. They sign off on it, and then and only then do they do they make the uh, archival elements as they are called. So they will strike a new interneg, which is a special kind of very fine grain negative that's put in a laser film recorder like an airy laser. And again, this goes about a, a frame a second or so. It's a very, very slow process. And it capture it can capture up to 4K of data off the, uh, the server. And these are all the color time files going through a special output LUT, which is intended especially for that signal path, for that recorder. Right. And the idea is once it finally hits the negative, it's going to be very, very close to what we saw in the color timing room. Right. This is a very long process. It takes roughly 40 hours to output 20 minutes of film to a film <laughs> recorder. Now you would think you would be done oh. after that 40 hours, but no, there's more. Once it's recorded, you have to let the film sit there for eight hours to kind of cure inside the, uh, the magazine, you know, that holds the, the motion picture film. So it kind of, you might say, it sort of airs it out and lets it breathe and lets the signals stabilize. If you, if you try to develop that film too quickly, you might get it a little bit off from what it should really look like. So after this 48 hour period, you take the magazine off, throw the uh, film in a can, being very careful not to expose it to light, run it down to the lab, then they develop it. Once they develop it, now we have an, a new master negative of this motion picture, at least that 20 minute roll. So this is a perfect analog copy of a digital file as a piece of film. Then you have to strike a print from it and you uh, make a contact print, just like people used to do in the uh, still photography days. And then we take the, uh, the print, which can be done very quickly. That can be just done in an hour or two, faster than real time. Then we take the print from the lab, throw it on a projector, and then screen it and hope to God that it, it has a vague resemblance to what we did back in the digital film timing room. And uh, they've gotten very good at this. I know at 15, 16 years ago, Cinesite, because it, they were a division of Kodak, was very proud of the fact that they had the tightest alignment of a digital image and a film image. They could, they could guarantee that they, would, they were within a few percent, I would say about 5%. It was not a 100% perfect process, but it was close. And at other companies in town, I think uh, God knows what you would see. You might even see one kind of image on a, on a Monday and a completely different kind of image on a Thursday. Getting LUTs and film recorders uh, calibrated, as they, as they call it, is a, a very difficult decision. As much as I love film and much as I consider myself a film person to some degree, I don't mourn the loss of film for projection in theaters. Because the only thing I remember from a lot of those, uh, those projects is just how nasty and rotten and terrible <laughs> the projected film image often did. Even, even the first or second time it was, it was shown, we would see jitter and we'd see grain and we'd see dirt and scratches and things like that. And from my perspective, those are all things I don't yeah, miss. No I love, I love seeing a super high quality projected digital image, even if it was shot on film, especially if it's a, a super duper Dolby laser projector or something like that in Dolby vision. 
because uh, the blacks are great, the highlights are fantastic, the color is really true to life, and it has a lot of impact without any of the flaws of film. One of the secrets of film is in the old days, if, if you went to a film color timing room with a film guy and said, can you put a little more saturation in the image, they would kind of shrug and say, sure, I can do that. And what they would do is, is darken the image. Um, and in film, because they're working entirely in log, yeah. when you darken the image, it actually adds a little bit of saturation, but it's darker. Right. And the same thing is also true if you tell them, oh, you know what, I'd like to desaturate this a bit. They would go, oh, sure, no problem. And all they would do is lighten the overall image. They'd bring up the density. And that would, and that would you know, make the image lighter, but it would have less, less saturation. So now let me ask you, because we've been kind of talking about the way things used to be and, and how this all used to work. So if we look back in, let's say, the past two or three years, have you been doing restoration work uh, over the past couple of years? What I've been doing is there are companies that uh, are trying desperately to preserve films that are practically lost. For every great, magnificent film like uh, Lawrence of Arabia, which you just mentioned, there are probably uh, 500 other films that either nobody has heard of or they only have a very small uh group of fans right. crazy obsessed fans <laughs> who love these movies these more obscure films yeah. and i've i've done a lot of work for uh, a company on the east coast called vinegar syndrome which is a very a very funny name for a company because vinegar syndrome is the name given to a film that's rotting away yeah. and turning to dust and it smells just like vinegar i have literally picked up old rolls of film in the 80s which uh, have turned to jelly. These are nitrate oh. films, black and white films from the 30s and 40s. I, I was on a Laurel and Hardy project for the company that owned the copyrights to them back then. And we got about uh, three reels into a project. The first two reels seemed fine. It was a beautiful, sharp, fantastic black and white nitrate image. And then I opened the third can and it was just it looked like a lopsided layer cake just kind of melted on one side and dusty and bad on the other and the client took a look at that and said oh get this out of the building and i said really why and he goes yeah. well these it could explode yeah. and incinerate all of us and i said oh i guess we better stop them yeah what what i later found out is that is actually not true nitrate does not explode it's not like uh, dynamite or or anything like that the the risk is it's very 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 flammable yeah. and you cannot put the fire out because it generates its own oxygen literally if I set that roll of film on fire and then dropped it in a bucket of water it would continue to burn <laughs> so that's that's the problem that's the problem with nitrate also it, it does tend to explode if you have it in a sealed can right because the, the escaping gases yeah. have nowhere to go, so the can explodes. Yeah. So nitrate is dangerous. There is a risk handling it. But the good news is in 2018, 2017, uh, a lot of the nitrate has already fallen apart, and they, they don't have any way of saving it anymore. The only thing that remains for a lot of those films are safety film copies made on newer stock. And, and those, for the most part, look fine, although they are a generation down from the original. So is this kind of like, you know, the, the, so the restoration work you're doing now, is it, is it that old that you're doing stuff that maybe isn't the original nitrate, but copies of that original nitrate? All of what I'm doing now are mainly cult films, I, I guess you could call them, from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Oh, okay. I, okay. I, did a, I did a film not too long ago that was from 1997, so it's not, not that old. Yeah. And uh, these are films that have a small but dedicated audience, and they, they figure out a need for these releases. A lot of them are horror films, uh, black exploitation films, kung fu films, slasher films, even science fiction films. Mm. And uh, some of them are not exactly films that are on the level of Lawrence of Arabia or <laughs> Citizen Kane or Casablanca, but there's still films that are important. And I always say, if a, if a movie came out and it had a commercial release and it was in theaters, it deserves to be preserved. Right. Because somebody out there probably likes this movie. 
and you know god knows why but you know they they do have a charm to them even the terrible movies like uh, right now there's a lot of acclaim being given to uh the room the tommy wiseau bad movie from about 2002 2003 yeah. which is acclaimed as the worst movie <laughs> ever made at least in modern times and um and so, you know, so there is kind of a perverse fun in watching these terrible movies because they're so bad. So they're a lot of fun and they're very entertaining. So you can kind of enjoy them on that level. So now you used an interesting word in that answer, which was preserved. Do you consider that what you're doing uh, with this set of films that you're working on nowadays is more preservation than restoration? Since clearly, you know, it's not like they're falling apart. You're just probably doing a lot of cleanup work. And, and how are you expecting those films to be delivered to you? Or how are they delivered to you? They have the ability to scan at 4K. And for certain projects, we do scan them at 4K. And then I either color correct uh, 2K copies of the 4K files, or I look at, look at the 4K files directly and color correct them in an HD timeline. But what they then do with my work is I send the actual resolve session back to the client on the East Coast, and then they render it out on their end. They also make the determinations on framing, which is a critical right. and kind of a subjective area as far as how should we frame this image, what should the aspect ratio be, and so on. My inclination often for a lot of these old movies uh, is just to release them in, in 178 for HD, just normal 16 by nine, but they are real sticklers and they insist that it be true 185. So these are the film connoisseurs who want everything, all the I's to be dotted and the T's to be crossed. It's got to be just so. Even if you do the 185, I mean, on a lot mm. of these films, if you go back to the original camera negative, I, I mean, they're, they're exposing that full frame, right? I mean, it's not always... They are. Uh, so, sometimes they're full app, sometimes it's just academy aperture and right. the two are different. But, uh, but the trick is, if the director and the cinematographer never intended for you to see the area yeah. outside that frame, then it doesn't matter. Right. The 4x3 the image that's there is just extraneous stuff. Right. So, so I, I can understand that, that reasoning. They, would they just do basically a center cut of that 4x3 image? Was that generally how they filmed these? Or did they sometimes like shift that framing a little bit for final distribution? When I was mastering for the various studios, some of the studios I've worked for include Warner Brothers and a lot of movies for Fox, a lot of movies for Sony Pictures over the years. And when I say a lot, I mean uh, more than seven or 800 mm -hmm. in the last 20 years. They, uh, they would kind of rely on our judgment. And there were cases when I did certain films where I would look at something, realize that the framing was a little bit off, and I would make a very subtle adjustment. Right. And, uh, you know, you can always make a judgment call on that. How much of a change is too much? And the diehard cinema purists would say, no, you must never adjust the framing because that way you're, uh, you're making a decision for the director, which you should not do. I would say, you know, what I'm concerned with is, what about the guy sitting in front of his monitor with a six pack of beer who just wants to be entertained? <laughs> Do I want to present yeah. kind of a cockeyed off center image or would I rather frame that shot the way it should be framed? I'll give you an example. I had a, a film a few months ago where part of the surprise in the scene was the villain had a gun hidden under the table and the way they shot the uh, film uh, you could only see the very top of the gun at the bottom of the frame. I made the decision to go ahead and tilt down a little bit so we could really get an idea, oh, there's a gun there. Right. So it, it actually helped sell the gag, I think, a little bit. I'll tell you a quick story about a, a video restoration project I did a long time ago. I did, a, I did Jerry Lewis's first film, which was called The Bellhop. And this was a film where he shot it, I think he shot it for half a million dollars in Miami while he was performing at the Fontainebleau Hotel about 1960. And there's a, it's just a series, as, as, the, as the movie goes, it's a series of silly sequences. They make no <laughs> sense. It's, it's a goofy Jerry Lewis movie that's kind of wacky. Right. 
it's sort of like little three-minute sketches, and you throw them all together, and you sort of have a 90-minute movie. <laughs> there was a scene at night where Jerry is walking around looking goofy as he does. He's wearing a tuxedo, and he's got a little Instamatic camera or something like an Instamatic camera with a tiny flash bulb on it. He's walking around this hotel at night. There's a lot of people gathered outside the hotel. He holds the camera up to his face, hits the button. There's a flash, and suddenly everything is daytime. And he's in shock. The party guests at this at this hotel are shocked. And everybody kind of staggers around sort of in a stupor, unable to figure out what has happened. And that's the end of the sequence. Now, now that's that's funny on the surface. However, when they shot it, what Jerry did was he actually left the camera there overnight and uh and then just restarted the camera in the morning assembled all the actors in the same position and made a splice in the film the problem is when they shot it the camera tripod was in dirt so it settled a little bit to the left so it so when the cut was made the shot was now a little bit crooked and the illusion wasn't fulfilled i saw this and even though the film uh, transfer the color correction session was being supervised by one of Jerry's representatives I looked at that and I said you know I could fix that so I did a little rotation and a little pan move and a little tiny tilt and I went back and forth where the splice was and now the illusion was perfect and it looked like an absolute fantastic magic trick I thought eh why, why not fix it? I have the ability. We, we, we have more technology than they did 40, 50 years ago, so I let it go. Now, here's the funny story. A couple of weeks later, they sent Jerry a check disc to take a look at, and the phone rang in the bay. I picked it up. It was Jerry Lewis, and he said, hey, let me, let me talk to uh, Bob. Bob was the guy supervising the session. I handed it to him, and Bob looked at me and said, uh-huh, yeah, hi, Jerry, uh-huh, no, what? He did. Oh, okay, I'll tell him. And he hung the phone up and he turned to me and he said, Jerry says, I saw what you did on that hotel shot. Thank you so much. That's driven me crazy for 40 years. <laughs> and that and and that just goes down to like this whole argument. Like, do we, yeah. is the purpose of preservation and restoration to bring it back to the way of the original theatrical release? Or is it just to revive it for a modern audience so that they can enjoy it. And what you talked about is if he could have made it perfect, he would have made it perfect. And you are in no way, um, you know, tramp trampling upon the original intent of the film by making a modern choice using modern tools. I can, I can tell you this is a hotly debated topic. I'll, I'll give you another for instance. There are, there are devoted fans who love the classic Disney cartoons. And they are all for companies like Lowry cleaning up the classic animated films and removing all the dirt because the dirt is not yeah. part of the animation. Yeah. The dirt is just sludge that's gone on the negative and the prints over the years. Yeah. However, there is some dirt that actually happened on the animation cells in the studio that have always been there since day one. So there are actually fans who complain, well, you've taken all the dirt out and you've actually changed the way the animation looked from the 1930s and 1940s. So the question is, how crazy and obsessive do you want to be? To me, dirt is dirt, and Walt Disney never wanted dirt in the yeah, image. If he could I have, would say, take it out. Yeah, exactly. If he could have had a pristine version there, he would have. On the other hand, then there have been cases where Walt Disney Productions went in and saw animation mistakes where, say, there was a line missing or a character's eyeball went away for a few frames and then came back. Right. And they would go in and fix that. Hmm. Now, where, where have we crossed the line and now we're making um, drastic changes to the film that change the content? You know that you know that. Speaking of which, the the most famous uh, case of that, of course, is George Lucas's Star Wars. Yeah, films. I was going to mention that. I mean, that to me, that actually drives me a little bit crazy because, well, I mean, explain what he does. I I work for George. I say I work for George. I, I work for Industrial Light and Magic for a few months in early 2004, and we remastered the original Star Wars film, which was Chapter Four: yeah. A New Hope. And then we also remastered um, chapter six or episode six, which was Return of the Jedi. Right. 
in both cases, George had made editorial changes. He had made he had added new characters to scenes. He had moved around some shots. Uh, he had changed the outcome of certain scenes, like the famous Han shot first scene in the Star Wars bar, the Cantina bar. Yeah. And so you have to wonder. This is this is a point where it's no longer restoration. Now it's an excuse to change things. Yeah, I mean they're they're making creative. It's no longer the theatrical release, is what it is. Right. Yeah. If it if it were up to me, what I would say is let's do both versions. Yeah. Let's make a pristine, perfect version of the original 1977 Star Wars as seen in theaters, yeah. and let's also cater to the producer, director, creator's whims and make all the changes he wants. Yeah and release both versions as a box set and let the viewer make the choice. Now, contrary to popular belief, there, there are some rumors going around which are incorrect, and I'll give you both of them. The first is that because of George's tampering, which goes back to 1999, the original elements are now damaged and re-spliced mm. and ruined forever and ever. That is not true. All the pieces still survive. The original negative pieces still exist. In a handful of cases, maybe a dozen or two dozen cases, there's a frame or two missing because of splices, film splices that were made. But those those pieces can be reconstituted through various means. Right. So it's not a lost cause. It is possible. The second rumor that's out there is that George absolutely detests the original theatrical versions and doesn't ever want them out. And the truth of the matter is, number one, he sold the studio or at least all of Lucasfilm, four or five years ago for four, $4 billion to Disney. Yep. It's really Disney's decision now. Yep. George does not have a say in it. The second thing is, I asked the people at ILM, I didn't ask George, but I asked some of the other people, do you think it would be possible for us to do this? Is there you know, a uh, any harm being done this way? And they said, the only reason why we aren't restoring the original theatrical versions of Star Wars is because it would take too much time and money. Hmm. And we, we just, we don't want to spend the time and money to do it. So it's really a logistics uh, situation. It's not a creative choice. Well, also in George Lucas's head, the only version of the movies that exist are the ones that are alive in his mind at that moment. <laughs> so to him, the 1977 version of Star Wars Long no gone. longer exists. Yeah. Only what he sees matters. And it's hard to argue with the guy who created all the characters, directed the movie, <laughs> produced the movies, supervised all the post-production, and um, also owns the copyrights. Yes. <laughs> so th this, this is a, a very rare case where the artist completely created and owns his own work. And so it, it's an interesting thing about uh, the whole problem of restoration. How much to change? How faithful should you be to the original work? How many mistakes should, should you fix? In my case, when we're correcting these uh, films from the 70s and 80s and 90s, what I will do, just based on my judgment, is I will make uh, lighting changes in some cases. For example, let's say we have three people talking in a scene and one person clearly has not hit their mark and they're kind of in shadow and maybe a little bit too dark, I will throw a power window on their face and light them up a little bit just so that we can see his or her lips moving yeah. so that it, they're, they're, they're not just disintegrating into the mud. Yeah. Or if we have a couple of people talking around a kitchen and I can see due to budget limitations, the wall behind them is just blaring. And I'll, I'll throw a power window in there as a, as a flag, and I'll knock down the wall a little bit. Now, you can argue these are visual changes, and maybe I've improved the lighting to a point beyond what they could do when the movie was made. And I think it's a judgment call as to whether that's wrong or whether that's acceptable. And I would say it's not a substantive uh, change. It's just a visual change. So it's not, it doesn't change the, the nature of the scene. It doesn't uh, make it look like a, a million dollar budget Hollywood film. It still is what it is. The other thing we can fix are horrible opticals or shots that just don't match. Maybe they, they did a reaction shot or something six months later. Yeah. And for the first time in the version we have, it actually perfectly matches. Right. And it never matched in the theater. 
So again, a purist might say, you know, that, that scene has never looked that good. It bothers me. Have you ever had a client say, uh, Mark, this looks too good. Like we let's keep some of that. What, what some of that grit or some of that, you know, feeling that it used to have. You would think so, but no, I have, I have <laughs> never had a client client say it that way, especially not with lighting and color. Right. However, they are very sensitive to the problem of grain reduction. That was going to be my next question. What do we do yeah. about grain? And, and I, uh, one thing, there are fans out there, uh, people who collect old movies on Blu-ray and even 4K uh, Blu-ray nowadays, where they, they absolutely want that sense of grain to give the film some kind of texture. And then you have filmmakers like Jim Cameron, who are completely opposed to grain and want every vestige of grain <laughs> removed from his films. And I, I haven't dealt with him personally, but I've, I've worked for companies that he has done work for, and he is adamantly opposed to grain. He absolutely hates it. Yeah. So you have both extremes. I think the correct answer is right in between. Lowry's, uh, Lowry Digital's approach, I think, was very good. What they would do is, when they would do a film like Star Wars or Jedi or any of the other hundreds of titles they did over the years, their initial process would be they would kind of do a best light uh, color correction of the motion picture, and then they would remove 100% of the grain, and they would do it shot by shot. They would do it based on highs, mids, and lows, and in some cases, even specific color channels. The other thing they would do is they would examine the individual color channels and take out flicker hmm. if, say, the red channel was bouncing up and down or the blue channel was a little grungy and, and the blacks were sort of vibrating they would find a way to stabilize that do they do that programmatically or do they actually have someone try to even it out they had people doing that <laughs> so so they so it's kind of like the way we do tracking and resolve yeah. they would kind of set a start frame and end frame and then let the software analyze it and then they would check it and see if the software did its job gotcha so it was it was a very methodical painstaking time-consuming process yeah. and the computers would also analyze the film, figure out what's dirt, what's image, yeah. and then it would actually cook overnight. So it was actually about a 12 to 16 hour process. So we'd come back in in the morning, look at the file and say, oh, you know, it looks really good, except this one shot now has a lot of weird artifacts. We've got to redo that. Yeah. So, so again, once, once they had a really perfect, beautiful file that had absolutely no grain and noise in it, then we would color correct it. So we'd color correct that whole reel, send it back, and then what they would do, and this is the interesting part of the process, they would take about a one minute grain sample from the film, find some nice overall bit of grain that was very even, had no flicker, and was very constant, and then they would apply that to the whole movie. Right. So in a way, you might say they were adding artificial grain back to the cleaned up movie so that now the grain is absolutely consistent. Right. Lowry's defense, and I, and I think this holds water, is this is actual grain pulled from the movie. So it's not artificial grain pulled off the shelf or some arbitrary sample of grain. This is a very specific kind of grain for that particular movie. So I, it was a sophisticated idea and an interesting process. I can only tell you, I think the results were fantastic. Well, and I gotta think if you're doing that level of restoration, they were probably pulling uh, negatives from different prints, patching them together. So you're gonna have inconsistencies that just weren't there in any of the originals. And that's very true. And so that's part of what they're doing is just trying to bring it all back together again. The other thing that would happen, they did all the James Bond restorations there, and they would have situations with some of the 1960s and 1970s Bond films where, uh, let's say, Bond would walk towards a secret door, and then he'd get off a, a, get to a cliff and be standing on the edge of a cliff, and suddenly we have a terrible optical effect, yeah. some awful yeah. visual effect with nine layers of stuff going on, and it would have heavy, heavy grain in it they would make sure that all of that was perfectly consistent so that now there was no tip-off. It was an optical effect. The grain didn't change. Right. So they would do that kind of thing. And again, you can argue, well, have you substantially changed the film? And I, th I think, again, it's a judgment call. 
to me it looks beautiful it looks absolutely fine and i have no problem i think you'd be hard pressed to find a visual effects producer even of the time who said that one of the things they love about visual effects is all the grain buildup as they do all these optical passes right if they could have cleaned it up back then affordably i'm you know you'd have to think that they would have that it's not sure. a feature. If it, if it, it's, it's if it a were bug. if it were possible if it were possible back then they would have done exactly. it exactly. And and I have to say you know grain is an interesting thing. I had a conversation with a colorist who does all the Marvel TV shows, mm. the brand new you know multi million dollar Marvel TV shows being done for Netflix. He adds film grain to every single one of those shows. Mm which are all being shot in 4K and 5K. So they still retain that kind of film texture as a deliberate look. Does he find, I'm curious, maybe you find this, or you've had discussions with colorists about adding film grain for um, kind of like internet releases that you have to kind of push that, it a little further or? That is, a, that is a difficult problem because of the effect of compression. Yeah, compression wants to take grain. all that out, yeah. It wants, it wants to try to kind of drop that out because it's, it's a continuous random pattern that it can kind of figure out and then cancel mm -hmm. from the image. And yeah, that, that is a problem. And uh, he did tell me that they actually have done different levels of grain for HDR hmm. versus a specific kind of grain for a regular HD uh, streaming pass. So the, it, it is a, um, a specific choice that they make how much grain do you put in the picture and 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 i i also think this this case of making different decisions on highs mids and lows for film grain is very important in real film negative you actually see more grain in the highlights yep. and very little grain in the low lights and the blacks so you know you can take that as you will what, well what i mean but it's a chemical sense. physical thing right i mean the grain comes from the silver halides and the silver mm -hmm. halides react to light, so where there's light, you're going to see more grain. Um, yeah, and that's, that's exactly kind it. of how it all works, right? So in your work, uh, especially in the last couple of years, do you work uh, with the people doing the scanning and people doing the dirt removal and maybe even grain reduction to, to get the image where everyone feels like it's where it should be but isn't prettied up too much? In the case of the scanning... Uh, there's always a give-and-take relationship between the colorist and the person doing the film scanning. And uh, in a perfect world, we would get the person who did the film scanning to uh, make perfect down-the-middle adjustments so that every shot was perhaps maybe balanced isn't the, the right word, but at least R, G, and B were kind of in the ballpark uh, with each other. You never want to see a film scan or a digital camera image for that matter that's skewed way off to one side to the point where you've got to grab the the various controls, the offset controls if you will, mm -hmm. and slide them way over to compensate for a problem like that. It's a similar situation. I'm, I'm sure our listeners have had situations where the color temperature was bad. Yep on a digital camera and you have to really struggle to compensate for that overload in that channel. And the same thing can happen with bad film scans. Uh, there was a film I did about uh, 12, 13 years ago. I did Dances with Wolves for Kevin Costner. And I think it was, uh, I think, I want to say it was MGM. It was either MGM or Touchstone, I can't remember. But uh, in, in that case, um, when we scanned the film, I drove the scanning and recording people crazy because we actually scanned the night scenes at one setting and the day scenes at a different <laughs> setting. And they hated to do that, but I, I felt it was necessary so I could dig in and get all the detail I needed to get. Right. And that was an unusual situation where I had very close control over the scanning. But I think the end results were worth it and it helped give me more range for the final color. Do you find that if you know that uh, a movie had been done with a particular film stock, does that inform you of your color correction choices and moves you need to make for that film as you get started? I would say no, uh, for the simple reason that, uh, especially with, you know, films of a certain budget, when we have these oddball, esoteric cult films, yeah. 
uh, they were shot with short ends, with different <laughs> kinds of film, developed at different times, shot under terrible conditions. Sometimes they used the right filter. Sometimes they used the wrong filter. Sometimes they used no filter at all. <laughs> so the, the, the results captured on film are so wildly inconsistent, there's no way to predict uh, what kind of settings or LUTs I have to use. What I generally do uh, from my node setup for these film transfers, I typically will start with uh, a curve or a contrast pivot setting as the first node. In the second node, then I'll figure out uh, an overall offset and sometimes chroma and sometimes a little bit of lift gamma gain settings to kind of normalize the image. So basically, right. it's it's what we used to call in telecine the front end of the signal, yeah. which is what is coming out of the machine for me to deal with. So I get something that is sort of, I guess you could call it Rec 709-ish. Yeah. So it's sort of a Rec 709 image that is a little bit uh, light in the mids. It's certainly not crushed. It's not clipped. So we have kind of a down the middle balanced look. After that, I use a series of parallel nodes to adjust uh, skin tone if necessary, and I've got the means to throw in keys and things like that if necessary to, uh, to fix any photographic problems. And then from there on, it's a, a fixed node setup that I use for various levels of gain and balance to sort of uh, tweak the image and get it get it to a point that I think looks like a reasonable image. And then after that point is where I do uh, power windows and clips and things like that. And I actually do use a lot of power windows. There is a lot of illumination I'll throw on faces. I just had a horror movie with a guy who uh, turns into an alien monster every so often. And I thought his eyes were way too black right. and odd looking. Right. And so I just took it on myself to throw tracking power windows into the guy's eyeballs and I discovered oh he actually has red eyes <laughs> and we 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 never That's would so have cool. known that yeah yeah and I and I realized my god the poor actor actually had to wear horrible full eyeball contact lenses and for the first time now the viewer is going to see oh this is an evil creature with red eyes and it's it was a subtle change i mean we're talking three or four units it was it was not a gigantic change but it's little things like that i think that can kind of help sell the movie make it more entertaining and help out the cinematographer because again they would want it to be that yeah. way if they could have done that 20, 30, 40 years ago. But again, it's a judgment call and I do it through experience. And again, I'm not trying to change the movie. I'm just trying to kind of help sell the story and all of that. At all times when I'm doing color, I try to think, is this helping the story? Is this making the characters look the way they should look? And I, I also understand we're not necessarily trying to make them look beautiful. And we're not necessarily trying to make them look bad or anything else. It's just, does it make sense for the story? So we do think about stuff like that. And I, and I do wonder, you know, I, I'll, I'll just, just off on a tangent, in the brand new Star Wars film, I thought it was interesting that they worked very hard, it seemed, to actually make uh, Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, look pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> he's he did. looks he looks very haggard and you know he's 40 miles a bad road but that's his character he's a guy who's been through very bad times however Carrie Fisher looked absolutely yeah. beautiful 90% yeah. of the time and I I'm I'm not sure I have not spoken to the colorist about this I would bet they did a little bit of beauty work on Carrie to make her look a little fresher, a little smoother, a little more polished, and so on, which is fine because again, it's all about the character. I won't do something like that on a on a film I'm working on unless the director gives me specifics like that. Do you find that? Um, and I think I'll probably make this the the final question sure. of this uh, interview. Uh, do you find that when you're working? with digitally acquired material because you're not you don't just do uh preservation and restoration work i mean you also no. work on you know modern mo modern acquired uh films and, and commercials 
Do you find that it's easier to work with well-exposed, well-filmed, not the stuff that's all like this crazy, terrible, like it was shot wrong on short ends, but, you know, the stuff that was shot the way it should be shot um, on film versus equivalently shot footage on digital? I mean, do you, do you find you have a preference of which you just find is kind of easier to work with to get where you need to go? For the type of shows that I'm working on, these older films from 70s, 80s, and 90s are the hardest things I've ever done. They're really, really difficult. I, if I had a choice, I would much rather work on a brand new modern shoot with a modern clean camera where I'm not fighting the image throughout the whole process. Sometimes there are, there are times I think with some of these old movies, I'm, I'm having a wrestling match with a tiger <laughs> and, and too often the tiger is winning, you know, so it's, it's really hard. I, 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 I have often said, uh, I've had many color correction sessions where it's like a whip in a chair where I'm just trying to beat the image into submission. What's interesting is part of the color correction process, sometimes I'll go off the deep end and I'm using all kinds of keys and windows and you know shapes and, and things like that to try to tame the image. And I'll look at it and I'll go, you know, maybe there's another way. Yeah. And I'll save that as a version, blow everything away, start over from scratch. And I might find a simpler way to accomplish the same thing that's actually cleaner. So there, there is no easy way. A lot of it involves experimentation. So I can't necessarily, if I, if I do film A, film B, and film C, I can't necessarily grab a look from film A and apply it to film C and have it work. It's not that way. However, if I know somebody used a red camera, especially a specific red camera, like a red dragon, and last year I used a look on a red dragon, chances are I might be able to use that same look and have it come out reasonably close. So I don't know if that answers your question, but what I will say is I don't think there's any more difficult kind of color correction than trying to do old movies. I think it's, it's very challenging. Uh, it requires a lot of patience and a lot of time. And I, I would say on average, I mean, these things take upwards of 40 or 50 hours to color correct. And this is, and this is just kind of getting them reasonable. I, I did one film recently, uh, a very strange 80s science fiction film called Liquid Sky, yeah. which actually did quite well and got very good reviews for uh, Vinegar Syndrome. And uh, that one took 100 hours. And in, in, in that case, uh, the, the cinematographer who was alive and kicking and doing very well, Yuri Naiman, a fine man who does really beautiful work, he came in and supervised and actually uh, went in and relit certain scenes to his specifications. And I'd, I'd say in general, he wanted things darker than the, the way I looked at it. I'm, I'm looking at it kind of from a home video television yeah. point of view. He's looking at it more from the standpoint of drama and being something very grim and dark and atmospheric. So that, that's kind of that, that trade-off. What audience do we cater it for? And, and in this case, I go, hey, I'm not going to outguess the filmmaker. You know, whatever he wants, he's the guy in charge. You know, Mark, you are a fountain of information about our craft and experience and insights into the craft and the workflow and the people involved. And, uh, you know, I have no doubt that I will probably re-invite you and we'll find some other topic about the things you do that we can dig deeper into. Uh, but I appreciate that. Uh, and I just I want to say that I really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you for coming on to Mixing Light and being willing to share this with uh, everyone here. Great. Thank you, Patrick. And, and let me say, I, I learned something new from Mixing Light all the time. <laughs> and uh, the little tips and tricks that pop up there, I look at that and I go, wow, this forces me to look at color correction in a different way. And as long as I can be stimulated and be forced to try something new, my life is fulfilled. I'm a happy guy, especially if it gives me more options. Yeah, and that's really, I mean, our business is crazy, isn't it? It is forever evolving. The technology, the equipment, and the workflows, and the ideas of how to approach all this. We're all using the same set of tools, and we all come from it from so many different ways. It's, it's amazing.
It's great, but it but it does show. You know, you can teach an old dog new tricks. There's all yeah. always something new out there. Yeah, you made this transition, didn't you, from uh, from the photochemical days to the digital days? And uh, kudos to you I, for that. I never I never did lab color timing, and I think those guys were the people who were most shortchanged. Yeah. Not to extend this interview any longer, yeah. but. Uh, we had a, a very sad transition time at Technicolor. I, I was at Technicolor for 22 years, and but I was only in the digital arm. I only did television shows and uh, digital transfers on Telecine. And we had a, a time where they were trying to transition their film color timing uh, people into the world of digital. And uh, I'd say 80 or 90% of them could not handle it. Yeah. It was too much. They were going from basically four knobs, yeah. red, green, blue, and density, which is all three together, to whatever it is, 649 knobs <laughs> in, in DaVinci or Resolve. And uh, most of them couldn't handle it because it was too computer intensive. It was too much to learn. So the, the sad thing is I believe film color timers understood the two most important things about our business. Number one, they knew what a good picture looked like. Yeah. And number two, they knew how to talk creatively to the cinematographer. Right. And I think those are two things you can't really learn. You've got to experience them over time. What you can learn is the software. Where are the menus? Where are the buttons? What happens when I turn this knob? Yep. But, but again, it was, it was a, a very tough period. And I'm, I'm sad for the film color timers because, in a way, their art has kind of been lost to the ages. But there are a handful of them who did survive, who are thriving in a digital world. And, you know, time marches on and they uh, are finding a place in the universe. Well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you, Mark. Um, sure. And so for MixingLight.com, I'm Patrick Inhofer. And Mark, why don't you say goodbye? So long, folks. We'll see you next time. <laughs>